Welcome to the ASHP official podcast, your guide to issues related to medication use, public health, and the profession of pharmacy. Thank you for joining us for Therapeutic Thursday's podcast. This podcast provides an opportunity to listen in as members sit down to discuss what's new and ongoing in the world of therapeutics. My name is Dr. Rebecca Anderson. I'm an associate professor of pharmacy practice at Shenandoah University and an internal medicine clinical specialist at Inova Fairfax Medical Campus. I will be your host for today's episode. With me today is Dr. Donna Lisi, an independent clinical pharmacy consultant. Dr. Lisi has been involved in geriatric pharmacy since 1985 and has incorporated the various revisions of the beers criteria into her clinical practice over the years. Thanks for joining us today, Donna. Thank you for having me. So let's get into today's topic on an update of the 2023 American Geriatric Society's Beers Criteria List for Potentially Inappropriate Medications or PEMS in Older Adults. So my first question for you is if you could just describe for our audience what the American Geriatric Society Beers Criteria for PEMS in Older Adults is and what makes a drug a PEM. Great, thanks. This is a topic that I've enjoyed talking about many times. The Beers Criteria are actually explicit criteria, and we just distinguish between explicit and implicit criteria. When we talk about the Beers criteria, these are designed to identify potentially inappropriate medications in older adults. And here we're defining older adults 65 and older, unless otherwise specified. So explicit criteria tend to focus on specific medications or disease states and are developed from the literature review and consensus. Another example besides the Beers criteria would be the stop and start criteria. On the other hand, Implicit criteria are more patient-focused and require clinical judgment. And an example of that would be the medication appropriate index. So to answer your question as to what makes a, a drug a PIM or potentially inappropriate medication, this is a medication that typically is best avoided by older adults in most circumstances or under specific conditions, such as in disease states or conditions. However, it's important to make the distinction that they are not contraindicated medications. There are times when their use may be needed if other options are not available or feasible. The purpose of the American Geriatric Society Beers Criteria is first to reduce older adults' exposure to potentially inappropriate medications or PIMS by improving medication selection. Second, it's to educate clinicians and patients about PIMS. And third, it's to serve as a tool for evaluating the quality of care cost, and patterns of drug use in elder adults. It's important to note, however, that these criteria do not apply to older adults in hospice or palliative care. How was the AGS Beers criteria developed? Can you tell us just how and when was the first set of Beers criteria released and what group it targeted? Sure, sure. Thanks, Rick, for the question. Yes, actually, I've been in practice even longer than the Beers criteria. The Beers criteria was developed by the late Dr. Mark Beers and his colleagues in 1991. So it was early on in my career when these came out. It was while he was still at the University of California in Los Angeles. Over the years, the guidelines have been developed and revised using a Delphi or modified Delphi approach. The original Beers criteria used a two-round written survey, that was the days before the internet, based on the Delphi method, which is a consensus-based process that uses the literature review. Initially, the criteria was developed to identify medications for which potential harm outweighed benefit in older nursing home residents. However, when the Beers criteria were updated in 1997, they now included all older adult populations, not just those residing in the nursing home. After that initial update in 1991 and then in 1997, 
The beer's criteria were updated again in 2003. However, unfortunately, in February 2009, Dr. Beers died of complications secondary to diabetes. He was only 54. He didn't even get to be an older adult or a geriatric patient, which was a very sad occurrence. In 2010, the American Geriatric Society officially took over the process of updating the Beers criteria. And hence, now it's known as the AGS Beers criteria. It was updated again in 2012, 2015, 2019. And most recently, this past May, in May of 2023. So that's just a brief history of the beers criteria. Thank you for going over that. So what's the process that goes into developing the beers criteria? Yes, great. It's a very labor-intensive process. The AGS beers criteria uses the GRADE, which it stands for Grading of Recommendations, Assessment, Development, and Evaluation. It's a framework for assessing the methodological quality of clinical trials and observational studies. They also use something called AMSTAR, which is a measurement tool to assess systematic review criteria. That's used to assess both systematic reviews and meta-analysis. The quality of the evidence is ranked as high, moderate, or low quality based on the American College of Physicians approach. The grade is used to examine data for risk of bias, inconsistency, indirectness, imprecision, or publication bias. And then the strength of recommendations is categorized as either strong, meaning benefit greatly outweighs risk or harm, or weak, where risk or harm may not be greater than the benefits. Now, as this is the seventh revision of Beer's criteria since its inception in 1991, can you please tell us how the document has evolved over time? Yeah, that's a great question. This is a living document, and it's important to keep that in mind. This is the seventh revision. And it's the fourth one updated by the American Geriatric Society. The spirit and intent of Dr. Beers is preserved with each revision. And that's very important. In 1991, the Beers criteria included 30 statements, of which 19 described medications that generally should be avoided in a nursing home population. And 11 11 described doses, frequencies, or durations of medications that generally should not be exceeded. Back in 1991, it was pretty simple. Include set of hypnotics, antidepressants, antipsychotics, heavy on the psych meds, antihypertensives, nonsteroidals, oral hypoglycemics, analgesics, dementia treatments, which were limited back then, platelet inhibitors, H2 blockers, antibiotics, decongestants, iron, muscle relaxants, GI antispasmodics, and antiemetics. So it was a smattering of different drug categories. Then in 1997, the explicit criteria for PIMS were expanded. Now the criteria also addressed whether adverse outcomes were likely to be clinically severe, and it incorporated clinical information on diagnoses when available. The update included 28 criteria describing PIMS for consideration in a general older adult population. Remember now, now it's not just for nursing home residents, but it's for all older adults, ambulatory care especially. This update introduced 35 criteria defining PIMS in older adults with any of 15 common medical conditions. This was the first time that we see medical conditions added to the beers criteria. And the medical conditions that they start out with were heart failure, diabetes, hypertension, COPD, asthma, ulcers, seizures or epilepsy, peripheral arterial disease, blood clotting disorders, BPH, and constipation, syncope of falls, arrhythmias, and insomnias. And then in 2003, the beers criteria were further updated to include 48 individual medications or classes of medications that should generally be avoided in older adults, as well as now we've jumped to 20 disease states or condition drug combinations that should not be used. 
they added the conditions of Parkinson's disease, depression, cognitive impairment, anorexia, malnutrition, obesity, and the syndrome of inappropriate diuretic hormone. 15 medications or medication classes were dropped or modified between 1997 and 2002. So as we see, this is a living document. It's in constant motion with additions and deletions. The first three Beers criteria were published in Archives of Internal Medicine, which, as we now know, is JAMA Internal Medicine. Unfortunately, when, in 2009, when Dr. Beers passed away, we didn't see an update, another update into, until 2012, at which point the American Geriatric Society had taken over responsibility for the criteria's revisions. The AGS Beers criteria, as it's now known, in 2012, included 53 medications or medication classes, and they divided them into three groups. We still have PIMS and classes to avoid in older adults and PIMS or classes to avoid in older adults with certain conditions or syndromes that the drugs may exacerbate. But now AGS introduced the category of medications to be used with caution in older adults. There are now 34 PIMS and classes to avoid in older adults. Among the new additions to this list were Megestrel, Gliburide, and sliding scale insulin. And that's always been a bone of contention because even the AMDA, the the post-acute care society has uh, signaled out sliding scale insulin as being problematic and reactionary. Among the medication classes to avoid in the presence of medical conditions were the glitazones in heart failure, acetylcholinesterase inhibitors in syncope, and the SSRIs in the patients with a history of falls or fractures. As you can see, more subtleties were added to the list. 14 medications made the list for drugs to be used with caution in older adults, including antithrombotic agents, used in those age 75 and older. Also added for the first time, a list of anticholinergic medications to be avoided in older adults because of their strong anticholinergic properties. And they use this based on scales such as the anticholinergic risk scale, the anticholinergic drug scale, and the anticholinergic burden scale. So those were the tools that they used to develop this list of drugs with anticholinergic properties. In 2015, we saw two new areas being added. Now we have added drug-drug interactions of medications commonly used in older adults and renal dose adjustments based on kidney function, and they did this for select medications. Among the drug interactions identified were the use of two or more CNS-active medications, including antipsychotics, antidepressants, and benzodiazepines. Other drug interactions include warfarin drug interactions and lithium drug interactions, to name a few. In this iteration of the Beers criteria, we also see a significant recommendation for those of us with a background in long-term care. We see that now it's recommended that nitrofurantoin can safely be used for short-term in patients with creatinine clearance as low as 30 mils a minute. Before this addition, the cut-up had been 60 mils a minute, and a lot of patients were denied the use of this medication because it was felt at that point not to be safe. But the literature evolved to show that it can be used with a lower creatinine clearance. It's interesting to note that compared to 2012 update, the 2015 update has fewer changes and new medications. This is likely because of the shorter time span between when the criteria were updated. Only three new medications and two new drug classes were added. Risk of C. diff and bone loss or fracture with PPIs and hyponatremia with desmopressin were included. Opioids were called out for the first time for increasing the risk of falls and fracture, especially in those with a history of falls and fracture. Z drugs were recommended to be avoided or re-examined. Also to be re-examined was the use in patients with dementia or cognitive impairment, as these may worsen that condition. 
Antipsychotics were also stated that they should only be used in delirium as a last resort. This is something that we've been following for a long time, but this time they actually identified it as such in, in the BS criteria. In 2019, it was pretty much status quo with the maintenance of the five categories of PIMS and no new additions in that area. The criteria encompassed 30 individual criteria of medications or medication classes to be avoided in older adults and 16 criteria specific to more than 40 medications or medication classes that should be used with caution or avoided in certain disease states or conditions. Additionally, some criteria were modified or dropped. A few new criteria were added, and for some recommendations, there was a change in the level of evidence or grading or clarification of the language. Some recommendations had more literature to support their claim. Among the additions were critically important drug-drug interactions between opioids and benzos or gabapentinoids, and also warfarin and antibiotics such as Cipro or Bactrim and macrolides, except for azithromycin. Azithromycin was basically considered relatively safe. Among some of the other highlights, caution was advised with the SNRIs, which may increase risk of falls, just as we saw with the SSRIs. Rivaroxaban was also known to or identified as having an increased risk of serious bleeding compared to with other anti- anticoagulants. Tramadol was now identified as being associated with the risk of hyponatremia, or SIADH, and dexamethorphan quinidine was also associated with falls or risk of falls and also with drug interactions. This leads us to the latest guidelines, which were released in May of this year, in 2023. The literature search for the 2023 version of the guidelines was conducted between June 1st, 2017 and May 31st, 2022. So it's basically in the heart of the pandemic. The 2023 literature panel consisted of 12 interprofessional members from medicine, nursing, and pharmacy, and included members from CMS, from NCQA, and PQA. And the group reviewed the 2019 guidelines and ranked their continued relevance on a three-point Likert scale. The latest literature was reviewed, and four workgroups were formed to examine specific criteria. Again, the Delphi consensus method was used. After compiling the latest version, it was open for public comments. This happened around Thanksgiving last year. Over 200 comments were submitted. And finally, in May of this year, May 2023, the guidelines were published. Having followed these guidelines over the years, in my opinions, there are a few salient points, but for the most part, a lot of cleaning up was done, removing outdated drugs that were no longer on the market or drugs that were not in widespread use. Thank you. So now that we know about the past versions of the Beers criteria, can you share with us what are the noteworthy changes that have been made in this 2023 update? Absolutely. That's the reason why we're here today. There are a few noteworthy points and a lot of cleanup. Among some of the important new information that's included in the criteria are further defining criteria for the use of anticoagulants, warfarin, warfarin, dibigatran, and rivaroxaban. And I'll talk a little bit about that more further later on. There's a more glandular detail uh, provided for the potential for harm associated with anticholinergic agents, including for the possible risk of falls and fracture in patients with a history of these events. Avoidance of initiation of oral and transdermal estrogen in older women has also been included in these guidelines. However, they say that topical vaginal estrogen remains appropriate for use in symptomatic vaginal atrophy or UTI prophylaxis. Although I personally don't advocate for the latter use, especially in the post-acute setting, women often do not go for mammograms or pelvic exams, so I'm concerned for potential occult malignancies. Deprescribing is recommended for women 
on non-vaginal estrogen replacement. Just as an aside, when I first started in practice many years ago, Premarin was one of the top 100 drugs year after year. So we've come a long way with that one. Another recommendation is to avoid the use of all sulfonylureas, not just the long-acting ones, as first-line or second-line therapy, or even as add-on therapy, due to their association with a higher risk of cardiovascular events, an increase in all-cause mortality, and their profound hypoglycemic effects, especially in an older population. In fact, the American Diabetes Association 2023 Standards of Care and Diabetes Guidelines point out that intensive glycemic control with regimens including insulin and sulfonylureas in older adults with complex or very complex medical conditions has been identified as overtreatment and found to be very commonplace in clinical practice. A scary thought when you reflect upon that. In fact, in terms of monitoring, the ADA recommends to consider the use of continuous glucose monitoring, just like we do with insulin, to assess risk for hypoglycemia in older adults treated with sulfonylureas or insulin. The BEERS criteria recommend that if a sulfonylurea has to be used, a shorter acting agent is employed like lipizide instead of gliburide or glimepiride. Other changes include the PIMS associated with the exacerbations of specific drug diseases or drug syndromes, including the combination of dextromethorphan quinidine in patients with heart failure. This should be avoided because of the risk of QTC prolongation. Also, the level of evidence of antidepressants for falls or fracture risk was updated and was lowered from high to moderate. The update reiterates the non-pharmacological measures should be used first, such as identifying triggering events for behavioral disturbances and dementia, and cautioned that antipsychotic use increased during the lockdown associated with the COVID-19 pandemic. And that's something that we're still recovering from. It recommends using evidence-based approaches such as DICE, which stands for Describe, Investigate, Create, and Evaluate to approach behavioral problems in patients with dementia. Opioids have been linked to contributing to the development of delirium, and the Beers criteria call for a balanced approach, including the use of validated pain assessment tools and multimodal strategies that include non-drug approaches to minimizing opioid use. That's a tricky one because both pain itself and opioids can trigger or contribute to a a delirium. For both Tocagrelor and SGL2 inhibitors, caution was advised in older adults, especially those aged 75 and older, as Tocagrelor is associated with an increased risk of bleeding in older adults, and the SGL2 inhibitors are associated with increased risk of urogenital infections and euglycemic diabetic ketoacidosis in the older adult population. Skeletal muscle relaxants were added to the three and under CNS active medications that should be avoided because they can increase the risk of falls and fracture. Lithium use with rash drugs should be avoided due to the heightened risk of lithium toxicity. The drug-drug interaction between warfarin and SSRIs rose to a clinically important status as a cause of increased risk of bleeding. Dose modifications were recommended for baclofen, in patients with an EGFR less than 60 mils a minute or are those on chronic dialysis due to an increased risk of encephalopathy. NSAIDs also made it into the renal dosing table with dose adjustments recommended for creatinine clearance less than 30 mils a minute due to their increased risk of a kidney injury and further kidney function decline. So a lot of outdated medications were also deleted from the criteria either because they were no longer marketed 
or because of low usage. So pretty much those were the biggies. There were additional modifications throughout the various tables to clarify language or to include additional concerns. But the items themselves, there were no new additions other than that. Well, you talked about anticoagulants. And so I was wondering if you could elaborate on the changes to the criteria involving anticoagulants and how this will impact practice. Yes, the 2023 version incorporates a special box that summarizes the criteria for use of DOAX and divides the information into explanation and recommendations, including dose adjusting all medications and renal impairment except for warfarin and apixaban. It focuses on three oral anticoagulants. Warfarin, rivaroxaban, and dabigatron in the 2023 beers criteria. I went back through the past seven versions of the guidelines, and interestingly, warnings regarding the use of warfarin were not included until the 2015 criteria in which warfarin was identified as being associated with potentially clinically important drug interactions with amiodarone and NSAIDs. These combinations should be avoided in older adults. In 2019, additional potentially clinically important drug interactions, including warfarin, involved cipro macrolides, except for azithromycin, as well as trimethoxazole. They were added to the beers criteria of that list. The 2023 recommendations state that warfarin use for the treatment of non-valvular atrial fibrillation or for venothromboembolism prophylaxis is associated with a higher risk of major bleeding particularly intracranial bleeding, and similar or lower efficacy compared to DOAX. It states that DOAX are the preferred choice for anticoagulation for most patients with these conditions. It also recommends to not start warfarin for initial therapy unless alternatives are contraindicated or there are substantial barriers to their use. For older patients who have been using warfarin long-term, it may be reasonable to continue treatment, especially for those with well-controlled INRs. And with, by that, they define greater than 70% of time in the therapeutic range. And also, if these patients are not experiencing adverse events. Dabigatron was first approved by the FDA in October of 2010 and was added to the Beers criteria in 2012. The 2012 guidelines recommend caution with the use of dabigatron in adults aged 75 or older or if the patient's estimated creatinine clearance is less than 30 mils a minute. In the 2015 recommendations, the caveats about age are the same, but now it was recommended that the bigotrans use be avoided in patients with creatinine clearance less than 30 mils a minute because of the risk of increased bleeding. This was a strong recommendation with a moderate quality of evidence. In 2019, the Beers criteria qualify that the increased risk of GI bleed compared with warfarin with dabigatran is in adults aged 75 and older who are receiving the drug for long-term treatment of VTE or for AFib, and that caution is advised in this group. The criteria are recommended to dose adjust in the presence of drug-drug interactions. Patients with a creatinine clearance of 15 to 30 mils a minute were excluded from clinical trials, so there really aren't any good recommendations for this group. For the reduction of the risk of stroke, or systemic embolism in non-valvular AFib, a dose adjustment is needed for patients with a creatinine clearance of 15 to 30 mils a minute. There are no dosing guidelines for those with creatinine clearance less than 15 mils a minute or those on dialysis. The dose should be adjusted in patients on P-glycoprotein inhibitors. There's also no data 
for those using dabigatrine for the treatment and reduction of the risk of recurrence of DVT or PE, or for the prophylaxis of DVT or PE following hip replacement surgery in patients with the creatinine clearance less than 30 mils a minute, since they were excluded from clinical trials. However, dabigatrine use should be avoided with concomitant P-glycoprotein inhibitors if the creatinine clearance is less than 50 mils a minute. Moving on to rivaroxaban. Rivaroxaban was FDA approved in July of 2011 and was first added to the BRS criteria in 2015. When it was added, it was included on the medications that should be avoided or have their dose reduced with varying levels of kidney function in older adults. For rivaroxaban, action was identified as being required when a creatinine clearance was 30 to 50 mils a minute due to the increased risk of bleeding. A dose reduction at this point was warranted. However, in 2019, the, the criteria cautioned about the use of rivaroxaban for the treatment of VTE or AFib in those aged 75 and older, similar to the caveat for dabigatran. Also, the same caution previously discussed for dabigatran was now applied to rivaroxaban for long-term treatment of VTE and AFib in those aged 75 and up. There is emerging evidence of increased risk of serious bleeding rivaroxaban compared to other anticoagulant options at that time. The cutoff for creatinine clearance at which action is required had been raised to less than 50 mils a minute, and further clarification was made such that non-valvular AFib, for that, the dose should be reduced if the creatinine clearance is 15 to 50 mils a minute, and it should be avoided if the creatinine clearance is less than 15 mils a minute. For treatment of VTE prophylaxis following hip and knee surgery, rivaroxaban was recommended to avoid rivaroxaban if the creatinine clearance was less than 30 mils a minute. That brings us to the changes in the 2023 guidelines. Now the recommendation for rivaroxaban was changed from use with caution to completely avoid. So kind of disregard everything I just said previously. Here we're talking about avoiding use in long-term treatment of non-valvular atrial fibrillation and venous thromboembolism because observational studies and network meta-analysis for these diagnoses have found that rivaroxaban confers a higher risk of major and GI bleeding in older adults compared to other DOACs, especially a pixaban, but also to dibigatran. Rivaroxaban may be considered a reasonable choice for other clinical conditions or in special circumstances, such as when a once daily DOAC is needed due to inherence concerns but they really don't recommend it outside of those limited indications. Also, it was acknowledged that all DOACs, including rivaroxaban, have a lower risk of intracranial hemorrhage than does warfarin. Rivaroxaban's dosing in reduced kidney function is variable and is based on indication. So therefore, the criteria refer the reader to the product labeling when the creatinine clearance is 15 to 50 mils a minute, and it's still recommended to avoid the use in older adults if the creatinine clearance is less than 15 mils a minute. Also in these latest criteria, it was advised to avoid warfarin when initiating therapy for VTE or non-valvular atrial fibrillation unless other DOACs alternative treatments are contraindicated or barriers exist to their use. It was acknowledged that cost and access will continue to be a factor in individualized decision-making between warfarin and DOACs. Whereas the recommendations for both rivaroxaban and warfarin were strengthened to include avoidance of the drugs, the recommendations for dabigatran remain the same and are used with caution for long-term treatment of non-valvular atrial fib or VTE. As for adoxaban, the fourth DOAC, it was approved in January of 2015 
and was added to the 2015 Beers criteria. The recommendation was that in patients with a creatinine clearance of 30 to 50 mils a minute, the doxaban's dose should be reduced. If the creatinine clearance is less than 30 mils a minute or greater than 95 mils a minute, a doxaban use should be avoided due to an increased risk of bleeding. In the 2019 Beers criteria, the creatinine clearance limit was lowered to avoid the doxaban so that it was reduced to less than 15 mils a minute. A doxapan dose should be reduced if the creatinine clearance to 50 mils a minute and should be avoided if it's less than the lower limit, or as I mentioned, 15 mils a minute, or if it's greater than 95 mils a minute. There are no additional changes to a doxaban's recommendations in the 2023 guidelines. So it's basically what was stated in the previous year. For a pixaban, the fifth DOAC, when you include warfarin, this was approved in December of 2012. A pixaban was added to the beers criteria in 2015 with the caveat that action is required when the creatinine clearance is less than 25 mils a minute because of the increased risk of bleeding. The same parameter was kept in 2019 with the addition of an explanation that safety and efficacy data are lacking when the creatinine clearance is less than 25 mils a minute. The 2023 recommendation indicate that apixaban is safer with respect to GI and major bleeding than other DOACs based on observational studies and meta-analysis. The dosing limitation for severe renal impairment was removed given that there is evidence of apixaban safe use in patients with end-stage renal disease. Thank you for going through all those DOACs and the anticoagulants. Now, the Beers criteria does present its recommendations in a series of tables. Could you walk us through what these tables are and some key points? Certainly. There are 10 tables in the current edition of the Beers criteria which is similar to the previous 2019 update. These tables are such. The first table is just an overall of the evaluation of the quality of evidence, and it describes the grading system for the, the strength of recommendations. It's really when we get into the second table and beyond, that's kind of the crux of, of the guidelines. So the important clinical tables start at table two. This is where we see which drugs are PIMS. This table is broken down by organ system. So for example, say the cardiovascular system, take that system. It's also broken down by therapeutic class. So now we would have antithrombotics under cardiovascular system. And then it's also broken down by drugs. So here we say, for example, we would have aspirin for primary prevention of CBD under antithrombotics and under the cardiovascular system. It also includes the rationale for the concern of why a drug is a PIM, the recommendation on how to manage the use of this drug. So in the case of most drugs, it's to avoid, uh, avoid is the general consensus for most drugs, and also as well as the quality of evidence and the strength of the recommendation, with the last two being taken from the first table. So they use the criteria from the first table to identify the quality of evidence and the strength of recommendations. For table three, this includes medications that are potentially inappropriate in older adults due to drug-drug or drug-syndrome interactions that may exacerbate the disease or syndrome. For example, take the category of syncope. The acetylcholinesterase inhibitors can cause bradycardia and should be avoided in older adults whose syncope may be due to bradycardia. Or in the case of Parkinson's disease, how dopamine blocking antiemetics such as metoclopramide may worsen Parkinsonian symptoms. Table four includes drugs that are PIMS that need to be used with caution in older adults. For example, the SGL2 inhibitors. Older adults may be at increased risk of urogenital infections, as we mentioned, particularly in women in the first month of treatment. 
an increased risk of euglycemic diabetic ketoacidosis has also been seen in older adults. So the recommendation of advise caution and monitoring this in these events. And this is especially important since there's many guidelines now, even for heart failure, are including the use of SGL2 inhibitors, as well as having other uses outside of diabetes as well. So I think that's an important recommendation to keep in mind. Table five includes PIMS that are there because of clinically important drug-drug interactions that should be avoided in older adults, such as opioids and gabapentinoid co-administration as well as combinations of three or more CNS-active drugs, such as anti-seizure medications, antidepressants, antipsychotics, benzos, non-benzos, Z-drugs, opioids, and even skeletal muscle relaxants. Concomitant use should be avoided in general. At times when it is not possible, it's important to closely monitor patients and document outcomes and be prepared to discontinue or deprescribe one or more medications depending on the circumstance. Table six are medications that should be avoided or have their dose reduced with varying levels of renal function in older adults. Among the drugs on the list include the DOACs, except for apixaban, as we just mentioned. Other cardiovascular agents, including diuretics, also anti-infectives, CNS and GI medications, and drugs for hyperuricemia. Table 7 includes medications that are PIMS because they possess strong anticholinergic properties. This table is not a comprehensive list of all medications with anticholinergic properties, but ones that we might frequently encounter in the care of older adults, such as the urinary incontinence antimuscarinic agents. Table 8 includes PIMS that were actually removed from previous editions of the BS criteria, and the reason why it was felt that they were no longer problematic. In most cases, the removal occurred either because the drug was no longer on the market or because its use was so low that it was felt to be quite irrelevant. Table nine includes medications that have been added since the 2019 update. This is a quick snapshot of some, not all of the updates to this edition of the criteria. And lastly, table 10 are medications or criteria that were modified since the release of the 2019 AGSBS criteria. Now, I understand that the Beers Criteria Recommendations aligns with the U.S. Preventative Service Task Force's recommendations that were issued last year, which really called for the avoidance of the initiation of aspirin as primary prevention of cardiovascular disease. So what does the evidence show about the use of aspirin for primary prophylaxis of cardiovascular disease or CVD in older adults? Great question. This is a very interesting one because in the original 1991 Beers Criteria, Aspirin was actually recommended over the use of dipyridamol as an antiplatelet agent. Since the effectiveness of low-dose dipyridamol was in doubt, and aspirin was used as a safer alternative. However, those recommendations were not disease-specific. That is, they were not for primary or, or secondary prevention of CVD. It was just a general statement. In the 1997 recommendations, we start to focus more on aspirin's adverse effects and doses of greater than 325 or aspirin are not recommended due to increased risk of gastritis, ulcers, and GERD. And we are warned that aspirin in combination with warfarin may increase bleeding risk. Nonetheless, aspirin is still favored over ticlopidine due to ticlopidine's toxicity in older adults. There was no real change to aspirin's recommendations in the 203 version of the guidelines. It wasn't until the 2012 with Beers criteria that we see aspirin use in primary prevention of cardiac events as being problematic. These guidelines stated that there was a lack of evidence of benefit versus risk in 
individuals age 80 or older. However, the quality of evidence was low and the strength of the recommendation was weak. This recommendation was in table four, the table that says to use with caution, and it would remain in table four until this last 2023 update. The interesting thing is as data emerged in the 2015 recommendation, this caveat about the use of primary prevention of cardiac events with aspirin in those age 80 and older was now a strong recommendation, although the quality of evidence was still rated as low. In the 2019 guidelines, we find that the age threshold beyond which extra caution is advised for using aspirin for primary prevention of CVD was lowered to age 70 and older. The rationale provided was that the risk of major bleeding from aspirin increases markedly with older age. Several studies have suggested that there is a lack of net benefit when used for primary prevention in older adults with, with cardiovascular risk factors, but the evidence was not conclusive at that point. Aspirin use is generally indicated, however, for secondary prevention of CVD in older adults with established CVD. In the 2023 update, now aspirin was moved to the main table, table two. The same rationale about the increased risk of major bleeding in older adults was still present, but now studies suggest that not only is there a lack of net benefit, but there is also a potential for net harm when aspirin is initiated for primary prevention in older adults. There is less evidence about stopping aspirin among long-term users, although similar principles for initiation may apply. The recommendations went further than advising to not initiate aspirin for primary prevention, but also to consider deprescribing it. This time, the quality of evidence is high and the recommendation is strong. The 2023 BEERS criteria was accepted by the Journal of the American Geriatric Society in March of 2023 and was published in May of 2023. In April of 2022, the U.S. Preventive Services Task Force released its statement on aspirin use for primary prevention of CVD. The recommendations clearly state that for those aged 60 and older, the USPSTF advised against initiating low-dose aspirin for primary prevention of CVD. This was a grade D recommendation, meaning that there was moderate to high certainty that aspirin for primary prevention of CVD has no net benefit or that harms outweigh the benefits. According to the USPSTF, studies reporting on the harms of low-dose aspirin, and here we're defining low-dose aspirin as 100 milligrams or less, which is relevant to geriatric practice. They found that a, a pooled analysis of 10 trials with over 119,000 patients showed that aspirin use was associated with a 58% increase in major GI bleeding. A pooled analysis of 11 trials that involved over 134,000 patients showed an increase in intracranial bleeding in the aspirin group compared to the control group. Low-dose aspirin use was not associated with a statistically significant increase in the risk of fatal hemorrhagic stroke, however. Although the increase in relative risk does not appear to differ by age, the absolute incidence of bleeding and thus the magnitude of bleeding harm increases with age and more so in adults age 60 and older. Why has the latest edition of the Beers criteria placed such an emphasis on avoiding anticholinergic medications? And what tools are available to help gauge that anticholinergic burden in an older adult's drug regimen? Yes, this is an extremely important topic. 
and one that has led to many complications in older adults. The BS criteria from its inception in 1991 has always placed a special emphasis on anticholinergic medications. Back in 1991, amitriptyline was singled out as being anticholinergic and should be avoided. In 1997, the list of anticholinergic medications grew and now included adoxepin, OTC, and prescription antihistamines, and the worsening of BPH symptoms when patients received antidepressants or GI antispasmodics with anticholinergic properties. As you can see, there's an evolution and progression as more and more medications are being singled out for the anticholinergic properties. By 2003, skeletal muscle relaxants and disapiramide joined the list, as did concern for the use of this class of medications in patients with bladder outlet obstruction, stress incontinence, and cognitive impairment, as well as those with chronic constipation. By 2012, the list of anticholinergic medications to be avoided in the older adults grew further. There were 27 references to the term anticholinergic throughout the document, and these were based on the scales that I had mentioned previously. Additionally, inhaled anticholinergics now made the list. By 2015, the list of medications with strong anticholinergic properties was updated, and information on anticholinergic medications was scattered throughout the document. In 2019, two drugs with strong anticholinergic properties, perlilamine and metscopolamine, were added to the list of anticholinergic drugs to avoid. However, there was a big change in 2023. In 2023, Table 7, the list of drugs with strong anticholinergic properties, is referred to in Tables 2, 3, and 5. So now it's infiltrated the main table as well. In Table 2, the rationale to avoid anticholinergic drugs has been expanded to recognize the risks associated with concomitant use, meaning the cumulative anticholinergic burden. This risk is also recognized in tables three and five. The latest update clarifies and consolidates the clinically important drug interactions, which can be found in table five, most notably to include the use of multiple agents with anticholinergic activity. For example, for anticholinergic antihistamines, there's much more detail it states that they are highly anticholinergic and that clearance is reduced with advanced age. Tolerance develops when they are used as hypnotics. There's a risk of confusion, dry mouth, constipation, and other anticholinergic effects or toxicity. Cumulative exposure of anticholinergic drugs is associated with an increased risk of falls, delirium, and dementia, even in younger patients. It also advises to consider total anticholinergic burden during regular medication reviews, and to be cautious in the young-old as well as in the old-old adults. Much more richer detail is now provided on the potential harm for anticholinergic medications compared to previous versions of the BS criteria. If anyone is interested in learning more, I published a chapter on assessing anticholinergic effects in older adults. It's open access and it's peer-reviewed chapter that was published in InTech Open. You can find it through a Google search. In closing, can you share with us how patients, clinicians, health systems, and payers can use the AGS Beers criteria to help improve the care that they provide to their older patients? And how does this fit into the concept of an age-friendly health system? Yes, yes, this is a very important point. The criteria make a point of addressing controversies and misinformation that surround their use. The authors outline several principles of how patients, clinicians, health systems, and payers 
should use the AGS beers criteria. It's important to keep in mind that different older adults may have markedly different risks of experiencing severe medication-related harm based on their age, cognitive and physical status, multi-comorbidities, frailty, renal status, reserve capacity, polypharmacy, and even their support system or elements of social determinants of health. Medications in the beer criteria are potentially inappropriate, not definitively inappropriate. As we mentioned earlier, they are not specifically contraindicated. It's important for pharmacists and other healthcare professionals to read the rationale and recommendation statements for each criterion and to pay close attention to the caveats and guidance as many criteria note exceptions and other considerations and should not be overly simplified to just say avoid everyone over the age of 65. It's also important to understand the reason why medications are included in the criteria. The risk of harm may not arise in isolation, but when other drugs are added or the older adult has functional impairments such as renal impairment. This is why a holistic approach weighing all of the factors must be used when assessing the appropriateness of using these medications, especially if one needs to deviate from the recommendations. The optimal application of the BS criteria involves not only identifying PIMS, but also offering either non-pharmacological alternatives, or in some cases, not substituting a PIM with any other medication or intervention. It is all case and patient-specific kind of like the Choose and Wisely campaign by the American Board of Internal Medicine Foundation, which advocates starting a dialogue between patient and provider to eliminate unnecessary tests or procedures or treatments, which include medications. This is especially important during transitions of care, where medications that may have been used while the patient was delirious, for example, in the ICU, are now continued when the older adult is being discharged. Pharmacist knowledge in de-prescribing and skills in conducting medication reconciliation are very helpful to assure optimal therapy. The AGS Beers criteria should be considered a starting point for having this conversation and not a comprehensive approach for identifying and improving medication appropriateness and safety. Many other factors have to be taken into consideration. Shared decision-making is key. Initiating or continuing a PIM may be reasonable if it's consistent with an older person's stated preference, values, or treatment goals. Another point that can result as a misinformation is limiting access. The Beers criteria recommend that access to these medications should not be excessively restricted by prior authorization and or health plan coverage policies. This may needlessly delay care. If anyone is listening to this podcast outside of the United States, the authors of these criteria caution that the AGS beers criteria are not equally applicable to all countries because of cross-national differences in drug availability. The beers criteria also provide additional resources to help with deprescribing when these drugs are deemed no longer necessary or appropriate, and it recognizes the challenges and barriers to engaging in de-prescribing, everything from patient reluctance to coordination among multiple providers to complicated tapering schedules to simply just notifying the pharmacy that a drug is no longer needed and should not be dispensed. These are all examples of barriers to effective de-prescribing. So I just like to close with the following statements. I think that it's important for our audience to keep in mind 
that the AGSBS criteria is a living, evolving document. By its nature, it's designed to change as the science changes. It's not absolute. Even if a medication should be avoided, it's not an absolute contraindication. That is where shared decision-making comes in. Know your patient's goals of care. That's very important. Likewise, it has limitations, which include the lack of clinical trials in older adults. Likewise, it has limitations, which include the paucity of clinical trials in older adults, lack of diversity. They may not be applied to older adults outside the United States in which different medications are available, and the criteria may not have captured all data since less robust sources, such as the gray literature, were excluded. There are companion articles available, not to this update, but for the 2015 and 2019 versions that advise patients, providers, and health systems on how to use the criteria as well as not how to use the criteria. Those older supplementary documents are still relevant for the 2023 update. The criteria also recognize the financial burden may play a role in the use of PIMS, and it expressed concern that this may be the reason that older adults may be exposed to potentially more riskier medications. It's also important to keep in mind that the Beers criteria is just one more tool in assessing an older adult's medication regimen. It is limited in scope to just the medications or just the disease state combinations or just the renal dose adjustments or significant drug interactions listed in the document. This is not real life. It's a starting point. More comprehensive documents, such as the Medication Inappropriate Index, exist, but the more glandular these tools get, the more time consumptive they get as well. So it boils down to pharmacy being an art as much as a science. Know your patient. From that, the rest you can figure out in the Beers Criteria are there to help. Finally, the Beers Criteria are available as an app and pocket card that can be accessed from geriatricscareonline.org. Thank you so very much, Dr. Lisi, for joining us and giving us all that information on the updated Beers Criteria in this episode of Therapeutic Thursdays. It was my pleasure. I enjoyed every minute of being here. Thank you so much. If you haven't before, I encourage you all to check out ASHP's clinical resources. You can find member-exclusive offerings such as resources centers, including those on critical care, nutrition support, opioid management, infectious diseases, and more. Other offerings include the Credentialing and Privileging Resource Center, the Preceptor Toolkit and Forums, such as the ASHP Section of Clinical Specialist and Scientist Connect Community, where you can exchange ideas and post questions with your peers. Thanks again for tuning in for this session of Therapeutic Thursdays and join us here every Thursday where we will be talking with content matter experts on a variety of clinical topics. Be sure to subscribe to ASHP Podcasts through your favorite podcast provider. Thank you for listening to ASHP Official, the voice of pharmacists advancing healthcare. Be sure to visit ashp.org forward slash podcast to discover more great episodes, access show notes, and download the episode transcript. If you loved the episode and want to hear more, be sure to subscribe, rate, or leave a review. Join us next time on ASHP Official. <laughs>